0: book of Exodus. Uh, we're up to chapter 18, hence the reason why we read that beforehand. It's nice to preach on the passage that we uh, had read. Uh, so let's open up in, in prayer as we look to God's word together now. Lord, we haven't come here just to hang out with people we know and like. Lord, we haven't just come here to tick a checkbox in the list of Christianity. Lord, we come... Together and we meet corporately because we want to know you more. We want to share with others who who want to know you more. We want to build one another up. We want to hear from your word. Lord, we want to know the one who has set us free from sin and death, who has given us eternal life, a hope and a future. And so, Lord, as we come together and and we look at your word, we don't even want to hear particularly from Steve, but we have to anyway. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say through your word. Help me to speak clearly, but also help me to uh, proclaim your truths and prevent my lips from speaking things that are not true to your word. But we don't just want factual information either, Lord. Lord, we want to be changed by your word. We want to see what is your will and we want to happily conform to it because we know everything you have for us is for our good and for our benefit. You made us, you know us and you love us and you give us what is best for us. So Lord, as we look to your word, uh, encourage us, challenge us where need be, uh, but show us something more of who you are, that we may love you more deeply and may respond more faithfully to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. i love have a good holiday. I think most people don't mind going away on a little holiday. Next year, I just figured out, I was just talking to someone earlier, that When Sarah and I and our girls go away to New Zealand next year, we've only been married six years. That'll be the fourth time that we've been to New Zealand, including our honeymoon. Now we're probably quite familiar with things that go on around in the South Island of New Zealand now, things that we love in particular. But if you ever notice something when you go to a new location, and you, you know, you get your little brochures and all the things, one thing you'll notice when you look through brochures, they only tell you the things that people can make money from. Because they, those things are given for free, they cost money to make, but all of the things that are in there are either things where there's an organised tour or there's something that someone has placed an ad in there because they need to make money from it. And then what happens is you, you're standing around with a group of people in a conversation, you say, oh, I'm going to this place. And then someone who's been there before, out of all of their excitement, they go, oh, you've got to go here, you've got to go to this, have got to go to this. Because there's everywhere you go, There is stuff that is really, really good that you don't find in the books. And people who've been there before, out of their excitement, naturally want you to experience and see what they see because they know you're not going to see it in any other way. And then when you go on the holiday, you're quite thankful for that person, aren't you? That you have seen something really, really special that had you just read through your travel travel books, you never would have known a single thing about I think it's the same way when we think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has done something amazing. It should be something that naturally we just blurt it out because it is that good that we want people to hear about it. Something we can't contain, that idea of Jeremiah, the fire in the belly, I can't hold it in. Because by nature, what we think is good news, we we tend to tell people. Now, there's always an issue when you use an analogy because they don't, they don't stack up. You try to uh, give it like an illustration or something and compare it to God, it's never going to work out. The whole holiday thing and someone telling you about good things there, some people like really weird stuff. So just because someone says, oh, you've got to do this, doesn't necessarily mean you'll we'll enjoy it. So the analogy doesn't always line up. Say, for example, if you are going to New Zealand, you're going to South Island, you're going to Hokitika, if someone says, you have to go to Sock World... Odds are high. Sockwell doesn't appeal to everyone, just letting you know. But we happened to notice it on our honeymoon and I couldn't convince my wife that going to Sockwell was a romantic thing to do so. I've I've never actually been inside it. But as we've gone through the book of Exodus so far, we've come quite a long way, but it's a book which has three key pinnacle highlights. We've seen the first of them. The first of the key highlights is when God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt to make them a people for his own self. We're heading towards chapter 20 where where they get given the law on Mount Sinai and then later in the book we see the building of the tabernacle, the place where God's presence would dwell amongst his people. But where we've come so far, we've seen the people brought out of slavery out of Egypt. They sing a great song of praise and celebration for God and his actions. But then so quickly, they start complaining. They complain they haven't got water twice. They complain they haven't got food. Then last week we saw another group, the Amalekites, come out to wage war against them. And God again protects and provides for his people. So they've seen it with the food God has provided for them on a daily basis, their every need. There's still something sinister and twisted within them that keep saying, we were better off back in Egypt. But last week we saw a group outside of the nation of Israel come to attack Israel. Now today we have, again, people from outside of the nation coming to the Israelites, but this time in a way that is a blessing to both the people and to uh, the Israelites as well. The things that we're looking at this morning... In verses 1 to 12, the value of speaking of God's acts. And in verses 13 to 27, serving God and his people. But firstly, we're looking at speaking of God's acts. Now, we need a little bit of background information. Remember, Moses was an Israelite. But he was born at a time when Pharaoh says, you need to throw all male Israelite children into the Nile River. Now, his mother put him there in a basket and As the story goes along, it ends up that he ends up being raised in Pharaoh's own household under Egypt. But at some point in his life, he says, I want to go out and see my people. I want to go see how my people are faring. And as he goes out to see his people who are being treated as slaves, he sees one of the Egyptian slave drivers beating one of the Israelites. And he turns and he strikes and he kills that man. Now the end result was that Pharaoh wants him dead so he leaves Egypt and he goes wandering and he ends up at this well where there are the daughters of a Midianite priest with their livestock trying to draw water to feed their livestock. And there's some others causing them a problem and Moses sends them away, draws up the water for these girls and they go home and they tell their father Jethro about all that this Egyptian or what they thought was an Egyptian had done to help them. And he says, bring him back, let, it, let us meet this fella. And eventually he marries one of uh, Jethro's daughters, Zipporah. So he marries into um, to a Midianite girl. So just to give you that sort of background again, we see there that the Midianites, they were descended from Abraham. So Abraham's second wife, and by second wife, not the two he had at the same time, after Sarah died and he took another wife, Keturah, um, Midian is one of the children Uh, via Abraham um, from that relationship. But as we see the Midianites throughout the Bible, more often than not, they're seen as both outsiders and opposed to the Israelites. The first place we see them pop up is in Genesis 37, where it's the Midian traders who take Joseph, who his brothers have put him in the well, and sell him to the Ishmaelites. Later, when you get through to Numbers, chapter 25, even God speaks of the Midianites saying, treat them as enemies and kill them. So despite the fact the Midianites are descended from Abraham, they're not in that promised line of blessing that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're not of the people that God has taken out of Egypt to make them his own special possession. So in terms of New Testament terms, they would have been perceived as being of the nations or as Gentiles. Now the chapter begins that Jethro hears about what God has done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. Because good news by nature is stuff that we tell people. Is that right? If we think something's really good and really exciting, we tell people. I know I often pick on a friend of mine, Rob, that I grew up with who loves trains and I use him as that... He'll tell me about trains all day long. He knows I don't care the least. But he's excited, he can't. It just comes out. I'll be catching up with Robbie when we go down to Sydney a couple of weeks and I can tell him about all the times he makes appearances in, in sermons and give him thanks for it. <laughs> so someone has thought that what God has done for the Israelites in Egypt is worth telling. And presumably, it's probably Moses' wife, Zipporah, who's gone back. Because verse 2 tells, two tells us that Moses sent his wife and his children back to Jethro. Now, the passage doesn't tell us at what point in history that happened. I would think that if Moses knows that God's going to do this great act of salvation, he's probably going to want his wife and kids around to see it. So I would presume it is some point after they had um, have gone out of Egypt. So now he's come back, they've heard the good news. Now Moses says his location is near the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, the place where they're going to uh, soon be receiving the law. But it's sort of, this sort of bookends. It's the place where God, Moses first encounters God was on this mountain. It was also the place when in that encounter on the mountain where God says, well, we'll meet you again. He says, "But I will be with you, this shall be a sign for you, I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt and shall serve God on this mountain. So just as a little bit of a side note here, remember how last week we, we spoke about that for the gospel to be good news, it means more than just saving out of something bad, there is always a saving to something which is better. And as we see here for the Israelites, God promised, yes, I'm going to save you out of Egypt. I'm not just going to bring you out. I'm bringing you out for a purpose. You will serve me on this mountain. And it's the same for us too. We're not just saved from our sins and the consequences of our sin. We're saved from something to be in relationship with God to serve him. But back to Exodus 18... We're told that Jethro, Moses' wife and his children come out to meet Moses at this point. Now this is where Moses probably doesn't win too many points in the husband departments. And says, and Moses went out and kissed the father-in-law. Imagine that when Sarah and the girls went away down to Melbourne for two weeks. I get there at the airport, out they come. I go straight past and give the little pilot a little peck on the cheek. How's that going to go down? <laughs> I don't think that's the point that's being made here, so don't make much of my stupidity. But from a cultural point of view, there's something being shown here. From a cultural point of view, it would normally be the person who was in the superior position would be the one who would stay still and and the other one would come to them. Now Moses is the one who's been chosen by God to bring the people out of Egypt. Yet he willingly goes and runs out I suppose you see the same analogy in the, the prodigal son as well. And he goes out to Jethro, showing him enormous respect. Went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. They asked about each other, of their welfare, and then went into the tent. So he goes out, then there seems to be the sign sort of the minor matter, the little chit-chat, is there, their personal welfare and how things are going. But then they go into the chat, tent For the the longer chat about the substantial, this is the major, the significant stuff. What was the big, significant stuff that they talked about? Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that came upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Interesting observation, isn't it? The minor peripheral thing was their own welfare Now we we sometimes make that a big thing But the major thing The thing that needs to be sit down Have a good chat about is what God Has done He doesn't even speak about it from the perspective of, of How good things are for me He talks about what God has done We can even make the make the Same mistake when we're talking about our salvation We can say I want to tell you about What God has done for me we should want to tell people about what God has done for me. This is the major matter, what God has done, not our personal, personal affairs, what's going on in life. The challenge is, doesn't it, when you think about your conversations, do we make the minor things the major? Or do we make the major thing, what God has done, what God is doing, is that what we make as the major? Or have we got things a little bit twisted? Because the major thing is what God has done. That's what Jethro needed to hear most. More than Moses' well-being. More about Moses than Moses' family well-being. God saving a people from Egypt wasn't just for the benefit of the Israelites. We've seen that throughout Exodus the whole way through. In Exodus chapter 10, he says, "...so that you, your sons and your grandsons will know that I am the Lord." But it's not even just for the, for the descendants of Israel. Even the Egyptians learn something through God's actions. There's a number of places where this is said, but particularly in Exodus 14, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Everything God does is a revelation of his character. It is for his glory. And so while it specifically said that even the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord as a result of seeing my actions, the thing is all that God does is a display of His glory, and it can bring others to know who He is. It's very clear the same thing happens for Jethro. Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel, that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, remember, the Midianites normally weren't big fans of Israelites. But he hears this good news about what God has done, and he rejoices. There's something about us as humanity being created in the image of God. We still rejoice when we see good things happening, don't we? Like in, in America in the last couple of weeks, there's been all sorts of disasters Yet in the middle of that, you see all these pictures, really touching, emotional pictures of of someone maybe carrying their child through floodwaters or something like that. And we don't know a single thing about those people, but there's something naturally in us that rejoices, are happy to see things like that happening. Like who sees those images and then asks the question, okay, hold on, tell me about that kid. What's he like? Before I decide whether or not I'm going to rejoice, is is he an ice kid, is he... Does he support this football team? Does he, does he do this? He doesn't listen to that type of music, does he? No, we rejoice because we, there's something within us that rejoices in seeing good things happen. Now, I'm not stupid enough to kind of make, imply that the Exodus was on par with someone carrying their cat through floodwaters or something silly like that. Clearly, Jethro is rejoicing more than just the fact that he thinks, oh, this is good, it's nice that, that people got out. There's something far more for more significant happening. In verses 10 and 11, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this fear, they have dealt arrogantly with the people. All of God's actions stem from his character, they are a display of his character. They, they bring him glory. And having heard about God's saving acts, this Midianite priest, so not, not, not a follower of God in, in terms of the biblical sense, now comes to the conclusion, this God is greater than all gods because someone told him what this God had done. Even though he's descended from Abraham, clearly the the faith of Abraham hadn't passed on. Because it says, now I know that he's greater than all gods. Which presumes that beforehand he did not realise that. But when he hears about Yahweh's great acts, he declares that he is the Lord above all gods and comes and brings offerings and sacrifices to him. Now this point sounds a little bit like chapter 16 where you saw the Sabbath introduced and you think, the Sabbath doesn't really get instituted till later on. But it appears a number of these ideas already existed and were in practice and some of these things may even been in practice in other surrounding religions as well. But at the end of the scene you've got Jethro, Moses, Aaron and the elders breaking bread, sharing a meal before God. Now that wonderful glimpse of the, the national Israelites, their leaders, but now this guy from outside, from the Midianites, who now has declared that this God is the God above all gods and is sharing a meal and is on par side by side before the Lord God. But the reminder of what God has done to bring a people out of Egypt isn't just good news about something that happened one day long, long time ago through telling about what God has done, this brought Jethro to God. This isn't just a a nice, happy story about a family who got back together after hard times. The celebration of this story is that someone made in the image of God has come to see who his true creator and who his true God is. And how did that happen? Someone just told him about what God does. Because everything he does stems from who he is And is a display of his glory Now even though Jethro May have been a pagan priest He still has some practical wisdom For young Moses As we look at serving God and his people In verses 13 to 27 As Jethro hangs around for a little while He observes his son-in-law Moses at work And he sees that from morning Right until the evening Moses is out sitting with the people, helping them uh, deal through things and to determine what is God's will. And he asks Moses about it and in Moses' own words this is what he describes that he's doing. Because the people come out to me and inquire to God. When they have a dispute they come out to me and I decide between one person and the other and I make them know the statutes of God's and his law. Now surely this is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, Moses is the guy appointed by God to to be a leader. Who else has had that sort of close personal relationship with God? If you want to go to someone to find out what is God's will, this must be perfect situation. But Jethro thinks it's pretty stupid. He thinks it's foolish. And you want to know what? He's right. It's not a very comfortable part of the Bible, is it? Someone's in-laws were right. Has anyone had in-laws who gave you advice and it was right? (laughs) Did you love it? Nah, in-laws don't give you good advice, do they? Of course not. He says, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now Jethro may be, be a, a priest for, may have been a priest for a pagan religion. so this may be from his just own, own experience of making mistakes and, and trust me in, in ministry you do learn from a lot of stupid mistakes that you make. He says this isn't good either for you or for the people the way you're doing this. But it's a common mistake in ministry where someone thinks I'm the only person for the job, I need to do it all because now I'm the person for this role. There's no one else who can do it like I can. What that usually means is that the person saying that has never made any effort to train others to do the thing, has never trusted others that God might actually use others. Jethro says, this is neither good for you, for the people, it's going to wear you out. And Jethro's advice isn't, stop doing it, let's get rid of this, it's a waste of time. He's like, you keep doing it, but share the load. And don't just look around and think, oh, who's got nothing better to do? Let's just pick them. They've got a bit of spare time up their sleeve. When appointing people to leadership in God's service, you don't just pick anyone. You find someone suitable. It says, look for men, able men from all the people, men who fear God. Who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and such men put such men over the peoples of chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So it's not just a case of who's available, it says first and foremost, find men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who will do the right thing. In a sort of very minute form, there's kind of echoes of the ways in which the New Testament speaks about elders and deacons. It's not because there's supposed to be a direct connection between them, but God takes seriously who he wants placed in a position of leadership where people will look up to them. And the mistake sometimes we make is when we hear things talking about leadership and character qualities of leaders within the Bible, people think, oh, I'm not a leader, I'll just switch off. But if God wants these characteristics in those who lead his people because it's important the way in which they represent God, then this is an indication of things which are precious to God. These are things that we should desire to attain because they are precious in the sight of God. You want to choose godly men who will be trustworthy, reliable and honest. So Moses still continues in this work but his role was to identify godly men, to train them, to equip them and support them. That's how you empower people. That's how you, how you actually build up something that's going to last. End result, it helps Moses, helps the people, and it helps the newly assigned judges. So that's the suggestion that gets put forward. And Jethro finishes his words in verse twenty-three. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go in their place in peace. Now, I've got the various versions there because some say God will direct you. So others have it almost in the sense of, say, Jethro is saying, do this because God is commanding you to do it. So Moses goes ahead and he does this thing. Jethro parts. We don't see him again. Um, The rest of the Bible. We don't hear anything more of Zipporah anymore either. So we don't know if, if she returned or where she fits into the story. Now, it's a little bit like last week to some extent. Like, there's no immediate application when you look and go, oh, this happened, I'm going to do this. Now, you're not going to say, well, this is a sermon about the importance of family reunions. Or this is a sermon about the importance of listening to your father-in-law and how as a father-in-law you must insist people listen to you because you're wise and wonderful. But, however, like last week, there are some timeless principles in here which we do have direct application to us today and those two things specifically are what telling people about what God has done and serving God's people God and God's people now because of the goodness of the good news Jethro has heard about what God has done It naturally came out of whoever told him they saw this was something worthy of praise and passed on this news to Jethro. Indeed, it was worth hearing. Because what do we see as the end result. The end result was Jethro says, I now know that the Lord is above all gods. He comes to understand who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Through someone sharing of God and who He is and what He's done. Now, commonly people make the misunderstanding that this idea of people outside of ethnic Israel coming into the community of God is only a New Testament concept. But that's not the case. You look through the Old Testament, you'll see countless occasions where people who are on the outside of the Israelite community coming into the community of God, one of them here being Jethro, you got Ruth, uh, you got Rahab, you could give you quite a big, long, extensive list. There was always that kind of glimpse that God had a plan for the nations. We see that even go all the way back to the promises to Abraham. In you, all nations will be blessed. From you will come many nations. Certainly we see the full big picture of that come Pentecost and beyond. But there's always little glimpses of it uh, throughout the Old Testament as well. But what's even more important than just the, the glimpse of how the nations are part of the plan of God is the transforming power of telling about God's actions in this world. How did Jethro come to this conclusion? someone told him about what God has done. Think about it. How did you come to know Jesus Christ? How did you come to enter into salvation? Now, I haven't got time to ask you all individually, but I would imagine for a high percentage, it's because somebody told you about what God's done. Remember what Paul had to say to the Romans in chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what we what, we, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now again, just like the connection to leadership, don't just hear the word preach and think, Oh, that's okay, I don't preach, I don't I don't I've never preached a sermon, I never plan on preaching a sermon. Not all of us are called to preach in a church sermony sort of sense. But if we are followers of Jesus Christ We are called to make disciples of all nations We are called to be the light of the world We are called to be ambassadors of Christ We are called to give an account Yet I wonder in our conversations We saw before the contrast between Moses talking about his own welfare as the minor And then the major sit down talk about what God has done In our conversations What is major? What is minor? Are we investing too much in the little, tiny little world of me and what's going on in my world? Or are we opening up people's eyes to see the big picture of what God is doing in his world? I wonder if sometimes when we speak about our life, do we give the impression to say God's not involved in it? I was talking to Jeremy this morning during, during prayer meeting. Now, we often give thanks to God. Like in our own prayer life, we're regularly giving thanks to God for all the things that he's done in our life. And it made me think, when we talk about those same events to other people, do we still talk about it in the same sense that we've prayed about it, the way God has helped us and God was involved? Or do we give the impression that God isn't involved? Do we see the hand of God? Do we give him thanks? Do we rejoice over it? So that we can share of it And others can rejoice There's transforming power In telling of what God has done Secondly serving God And his people The church needs to have A plurality of leaders For a couple of reasons One for accountability So that um, Steve doesn't just decide Okay this is what we're going to do We can do some weird thing Become a weirdo cult or something which is not my intention, it just needs to be clear. <laughs> but also to, sh- to share the load. But even then, amongst the three elders that we have and we would like to have a lot more than we have, it doesn't mean that all of the work belongs in the hands of the elders and we've got people who are heads over different ministries and all sorts of different things. How many of you ever read through the East Gate Handbook? There's a few things that a bit out, out of date in there. But you'll notice that when you read through all of the descriptions of different positions in the church, it always talks about training up an assistant. Sadly, in most churches, there's a handful of people who are doing most of the work. And people usually say, oh, look at that, There, that's, that's lazy Christians these days. They, they just don't do nothing. But I wonder how much of that is actually this that the people in leadership have never taken the time to invest in those people to to equip, to train them to help them to see their gifts. I wonder how many of those people don't feel like they are someone who the church would want them involved in something. Because as I look through the New Testament, the picture of the church is as a body where all of the parts need to do their function for the church to be healthy and work together. I think it's actually, I'd go so far to say it's pride in ministry when a, a pastor or, or, or elders alone or, or anyone in particular says, I've got to do all the work, I've got to be have my hand in every single part of it. It actually limits what your church can do. It actually—it's like trying to function on a body of a very few organs. It's often been said, success in ministry is not about how much you can do. They often say the best indication of whether your ministry is a success is how well it goes when you leave. If it leaves a big, massive hole and things go downhill, your ministry hasn't been a success because it's all been about you. The role that we see is to, to, to raise up, we called in Ephesians 4, to, tr- to equip the saints for works of ministry. Now we've talked about this a, a little bit in terms of escape planning and things like this year. We've begun with the school of preachers, uh, equipping in that sense. We're going to look at some things in leadership and next year we're going to look a lot more, at, particularly at things with regards to growth. We're going to do a school of discipleship. What does it actually mean to, to be a disciple, to make disciples? And also a school of evangelism. Now, I'm really looking forward to see what happens next year. When we think about how do we care for each other spiritually? How do we even disciple people outside of the church? How do we reach people outside of the church? Now I'm someone who's always on the good look for resources because you want to know something? I'm not good at everything. I'm not gifted at everything. Now, people, you already know that, Hopefully. Either that or you're visiting and you thought, I'll oh, just have to take his word for it. <laughs> like yesterday, I took some of our music team, Nick and Kylie, down to a music conference. I'm not the person to tell people how to run a good music ministry. It's I'm not good at it. I can play guitar, but that's about the extent of it. Any musician will tell you there's a clear d- just difference between someone who plays music and a musician, and I'm certainly someone who plays music. We've got a number of people who are going down to QTC later this, later next month or this month to a um, children's training event for working with children's ministry. Now, I'm not talking about these things about what are we doing, as though, oh, what's Eastgate doing, how great's Eastgate. The thing is, we are a body. God has given gifts, and it's the responsibility of the greater body to help people find them, give them opportunity to use the things that God has given them for the glory of God. So I want to see those two things, that we tell of God's actions, that we're not ashamed to speak of God who is active in our life, uh, but also too that we would be um, equipping up saints for the work of ministry, sharing the load and working with one another. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we thank you that you uh, have shown us in Christ so much of, of who we are and what you have called us to. Even Jesus called our 12 people to himself to have close, intimate fellowship with, to, to train them and prepare them and send them out. Uh, Lord, we pray that we were to be of the same mindset as we have seen of Christ. Lord, we, we, we pray too that you would work within us, that we would naturally see our world through a, um, a God-focus, That our conversation, our thoughts might not be so self-oriented. That as we speak of what you have done, of what you have done to set us free from from the from sin and death and Satan and the consequences of our sin, uh, the Lord, that the natural joy that it might bubble out of us of of who you are and what you have done, and that you might be pleased to uh, to bear witness to yourself to people. Uh, through through such events. Lord, it is a sad thing to live in a world where so many don't know you. And Lord, we, we pray for the salvation of people in our town, uh, but, but all around our world, that all nations one day will be gathered around your throne. Uh, Lord, we give thanks for what you have done and what you will do and what you have promised for our future. In Jesus' name, amen.